The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. Morning, everybody. Uh, we're going to be in First Peter. I know, right? That's actually why I'm preaching this sermon. It just seemed, it just seemed right. Um, so we'll be we'll be in the first part of First uh, Peter pray together in a moment. I love this graphic. Um, And if at some point I just stop preaching and turn around to look at it, just soldier on without me. Um, We are starting a a series here in 1 Peter. We're taking a bit of a break from Genesis, uh, and we will be talking about hope in exile. Um, So uh, I am going to pray that we would be opened up to this portion of God's word and how it speaks into our circumstances and into our day. And I hope that we can see with clarity uh, what that looks like for us uh, this morning. So let's pray together. God, we are grateful for the faithfulness of your character. Grateful for all that you've brought into existence, uh, not just ourselves, but the earth. We thank you for human community and for the chance to gather here to be present to each other, to worship you, to hear your word. Uh, These are all gifts, none of which we can bring about in our own doing. Uh, They are a grace from you, and as recipients of this grace, we are thankful. As we enter into your word this morning, I pray that your spirit would be at work in us and among us, that you would open us up to this text, that you would open us up to the work of your spirit, that as we set about the deep work of becoming like Jesus, that you would meet us in that, that you would speak truth into our lives and into our circumstances. And where there's any uh, lack of clarity or a, a question that compels us, I pray that we would be open to all the ways that you would be at work during this time. Bless us, we pray. Amen. Um, So just a a quick programming note before I get started. Um, There's any of like five different avenues that we could walk down in looking at a passage like this. And kind of what today is going to be is uh, we'll take sort of a short jaunt down each of those avenues. And if there's something there that you think you'd like me to flesh out a little bit more, uh, that would be a great question to ask. Um, If there's something you want to discuss further, whether it be in the text itself or in something that I say, um, the difficulty with going down those avenues a little bit at a time is sometimes I might not flesh things out as completely as I would want to, just for the the purposes of time. So please feel free to ask those questions. Um, We'll have a phone number up here. Oh, I did it again. Is it 0408? Is your phone still on? Or you could just, well, if you're, if you're watching remotely, um, you just have to yell really loud into the, into the TV screen. Yeah. It's, I think it's 0408. We'll put it up on the slide. Uh, for those of you here, there is sort of an analog function where you could stand up and ask a question out into the real world. I know. I know. And what we'll do in order to keep everybody comfortable is we'll just throw thumbs up with the, with the like button or the love or the, the care 
we'll just uh, we'll we'll scaffold our way back to interaction in the real world. Um, so, sorry about that. Uh, it is June. I am a middle school teacher, so you never know what kinds of jokes I'm going to think are funny. So just laugh, just laugh at me. So anyway, that's that. Uh, when we come to First Peter, I feel like we're sort of entering an unfamiliar country in lots of ways. If you have been in the church for any length of time, if you've been a follower of Jesus for any length of time, it's not like the most popular book uh, in the New Testament. Uh, anecdotally, just in my own experience, I've not met too many believers who would express that First Peter is their favorite uh, book of the New Testament. Um, there aren't a ton of famous verses like John 3.16 or Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. There aren't too many famous passages there. And even as I was looking for research material on First Peter, there's not a ton in the way of commentaries, um, at least that I came across. There are some, but, but it's not like a famous book like Romans has any of nine billion different commentaries of, of all sorts. Uh, there aren't a lot of controversies in the book, like 1 Corinthians, which we're, we've preached before. Uh, there's not a ton of doctrine like we would experience in Romans. It seems to be a letter that's just remarkable in how ordinary it is. Uh, and for me personally, I love <laughs> I love that uh, for a variety of reasons. I think that sometimes when we come to familiar books or letters in the Bible, it can be a challenge to actually hear in fresh ways what the text is saying. And the reason that I would uh, sort of focus in on this remarkable ordinariness today is that First Peter is just a simple opportunity to reflect on God's character, to reflect on the nature of our existence, on who God is, on who we are. It's just an opportunity to do that. And as human beings who seek to follow Jesus, what would it look like for us to follow Jesus faithfully? And I think it's perhaps easier to engage First Peter because there isn't the same level of noise or potential distraction that we might experience in other books. And when I say that, what I mean is when we come to a book like Genesis or a book like Romans, obviously inspired, part of God's word, there can be sort of theological hobby horses and everybody has very strong opinions about every possible thing in, in the book or in the letter. And in First Peter, I don't think that we have those same sorts of attachments. So it, it does free us up, I think, to hear it a little bit more clearly. There aren't, again, in my opinion, there aren't substantially difficult passages to understand where the theological heavyweights are weighing in and we pretend to know what they're saying when they use all those big words as they go back and forth on what those doctrinal issues are. There's things that we need to clarify as we go, but for me, First Peter is just this opportunity to reflect um, on God's character. Um, it's an opportunity to, to just recalibrate ourselves to what's true. For example, when we think about things that are true, First Peter 5.7 was actually instrumental in my own conversion. Um, I remember sitting in a college fellowship group freshman year of college. Um, I was sort of on that trajectory of becoming a believer anyway, and somebody spoke uh, this verse, uh, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And I remember just 
I remember my life circumstances at the time. I remember just being sort of uh, apathetic. I remember being bitter about some things, just listless and lethargic and, and not really caring about a whole lot. And that stirred me in lots of ways. And I remember hearing that as just an incredible invitation to a very different kind of life, kind of life than what I was experiencing. Um, so there's opportunities like this where in its simplicity, it offers us really profound uh, insight. And I think to move into the book itself now, that this invitation to a different kind of life is what Peter is on about in this letter. So just some of the context. It's very likely that this letter was written to churches that were dispersed in Asia Minor. We'll get to that as, as we read um, these cities in Asia Minor, Minor during a time of intense uh, persecution, or at the very least on the cusp of intense persecution. Jesus himself pioneered this way, this conflict with the existing systems, and the New Testament sets believers on this trajectory that eventually they are going to collide with Rome. That as the gospel message spreads, and quite frankly, even, you know, supernaturally and somewhat non-supernaturally, like as an artifact of history, the quickness with which the gospel spreads is a marvel. Um, and even secular historians would say the same thing. For the gospel to reach the hallways of power as quickly as it did is astonishing. But we also know that this message is not going to uh, be well received. And the New Testament sets us on this collision course uh, with Rome. The message very simply is that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. So as this message begins to spread, that's putting us in conflict with existing world systems. And it's not just the message. What is completely revolutionary, and I think what makes this so compelling, is their actions alongside their proclamation. They were consistent with the message and their action, and they did not back down. For them to say that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not, and for them to offer themselves up um, in the same way that Jesus did is compelling. So when I say they didn't back down, I don't mean that they contacted their state reps and or they won some great political victory for religious liberty in the empire, um, you know, via a Supreme Court decision. That, that didn't happen. Um, for them, they fought and they won the way that Jesus did. And resistance in this case meant dying. And what happens in this context, you have throughout the New Testament this idea that you, you must submit to the government. Romans speaks to this, that we submit to governing authorities, and that's right, and that's good, and that's biblical. What can be missed here, though, is you have submission to governing authorities, but submission here means that Christians are going to die. That you will submit to the governing authorities, but you will be submitting to your death. And that's what happened so one example, if you go back to the book of Daniel, is Daniel's friends, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, when they will not bow the knee to this. I don't remember if it's that they wouldn't pray, or I think maybe Daniel was the praying one, or they wouldn't bow to the statue, or something like that. They're confronted with this, and they say, we, you can say what you want, and you can take our lives. We will not bow to that statue. So that is a form of submission. So when 1 Peter talks about submitting to governing authorities, 
you are going to submit, uh, but it is going to cost you your life. And that's what's so compelling is that's what they did. Uh, Peter being uh, just one of many examples. And while this sort of trial isn't really part of our daily existence, I think we can understand the pressure that they were under. Do we, at moments of crisis, live according to the values of the kingdom of God, or do we submit to Rome, as it were? And when real persecution starts to break out for them, as friends and family are disappearing, they're getting arrested, they're being executed, there would need to be an encouraging reminder of who we are and what we're about. And that's what First Peter is. We are secured by the work of Jesus. We are confident and hopeful about the future, even though we live in exile, even though it looks from the outside like Rome is winning the day. Um, this is what First Peter is about. It's a reminder uh, to be encouraged. So the message is simple. As exiles in the world, we live in the paradox of blessing and trial. And I'd like to structure today's sermon around just three words that point to our identity in Jesus. First, we are in Christ chosen. And these are all things that the text speaks to. In Christ, we are tried. And in Christ, we are blessed. I think that what we'll see throughout First Peter, as with the rest of the New Testament, is this encouraging invitation to live a different kind of life. Um, I think one distinction that I would make here, when I talk about Rome, I, the New Testament sort of assumes that Rome is both a physical geographic place and it is also a system. So it is a system of corrupt human enterprise. Uh, so even as we read uh, the Tower of Babel this morning, that Babel is the same word for Babylon. As we get to the end of the New Testament, that's how Rome is going to be identified. And it's a way of talking about corrupt systems. First Peter is actually going to refer to Rome as Babylon once toward the end as well. So we're on this trajectory uh, where we are world affirming. And I think about it in terms of Manchester, right? I am an unapologetic Manchester fanboy. I love these pictures here where I can point to every single place where we go. Uh, a variety of things we love about Manchester. But I'm also not naive about the fact that Manchester is a system and it is a corrupt system, right? So there's the distinction between the place and what it exists as. Does that make sense? So we, we can talk about Rome, but we don't want to tear Rome to the ground, right? That's not what believers want to do. We don't want to tear Manchester down. We recognize the corruption of the system while we still affirm the beauty of the place itself. So take that for what it's worth. So as the heat rises and God's people start to collide with these uh, systems, we're governed by the values of our servant savior. And even when submitting to the emperor means submitting to our own death, we're governed by the life, example, and values of Jesus who modeled this way. And this is going to be an anchor for us in times of trial. It is for the believers here, and it is for us as well. So I'll read section by section and then, and then make some comments. First Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, 
in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So verse 1 very clearly identifies the author as Peter. It very clearly identifies Peter as an apostle, which just means sent. And the recipients of the letter are equally clear. These elect exiles uh, of the dispersion in these various locations all over Asia Minor. Easy enough to identify the particulars. What is a little bit less than easy to wrap our minds around is this phrase, elect exiles, or chosen exiles. So we have this already, this kind of paradox between what it means to be elect or what it means to be chosen and what it means to be in exile. And personally, I love this because uh, I, I, that just captures life. I think paradox captures the nature of life in the world, that we are both chosen and exile in this fallen world. But it does confound expectations even as it gets right to the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. And what do I mean by that? From the fall in Genesis 3 onward through the rest of human history and up to the present day, human beings have been dispossessed. We are on the one hand image bearers. That never goes away. Theologically, people do not lose the image of God. And yet at the same time, we are sort of working our life and existence out in a fallen world. Stewards of the earth, wanderers on the earth. This describes human history from Genesis 3 on. So if you think about the prodigal son in Luke 15, we are squandering our inheritance in a distant land until we come to our, sen uh, our senses. That's one reality. The opposite reality or the paradoxical reality is that we are ever sought by a father who wants us back. That summarizes, I think, our entire existence post-Genesis 3. And I think that we need to hold on to this paradox. Um, we are, day in and day out, we are infinitely loved by a gracious and kind creator. We are chosen according to his foreknowledge. There's a lot of words in that sentence. Uh, that we might be sanctified by the Spirit. Those are, these are the phrases that come right out of the text. We are also, day in and day out, we are sojourning toward home, right? That these things are true all at the same time. We are prone to drift. We are prone to corruption. Even in our day in Christ, we are still dispersed. And this paradox permeates the New Testament, that this is what it means to be a human who is trying to follow Jesus. We are elect exiles. That's the phrase that Peter used. And the greeting formula here that, that Peter uses, may grace and peace be yours in abundance, is familiar to us through the rest of the New Testament as well. Paul in his letters follows the same sort of format, grace and peace to you. And I think it's important here to pause because this might be something that we sort of gloss over a little bit too quickly. We really want to stop to pause to soak in this idea that we are recipients of God's grace and peace. And here in 1 Peter, it says, may it be multiplied to you. May it be abundant. This is a spot where familiarity can 
can cause us to read too quickly, I think. And it's really built on the idea, David spoke about this a couple weeks ago, this idea of God's hesed is the Hebrew word for his loving kindness, his generosity. There's a lot of different ways to translate it, but it captures this covenant faithfulness of, of God all through the Old Testament. And the New Testament authors pick up this idea of this hesed, the other Hebrew word is emet, this, this grace, this generosity, this peace that is yours. And we don't want to skate by it too quickly. Um, to further flesh this out, the New Testament offers us these words of blessing, but it also provides us examples of what it means to be chosen, to be graced, to be blessed to be the recipient of God's peace. You have Jesus, you have Peter, you have Paul, you have Martha and Mary, which I think this would be the third week in a row for Martha and Mary. I just, we're just keeping the streak, keeping the streak alive. So um, Martha and Mary, you have all of these wonderful examples of what it means to be the recipient of God's grace and his peace, what it means to be chosen. It's not pride of place. It's not cheap political victories. It's not a life where you get to skate above the hardship of existence. It is grace. We didn't cause it. It is peace. But merely understanding the words themselves, it doesn't go the full distance. We really do want to meditate on the implications. And I think that this has a lot of potential. And I'm just going to put this out as one potential practice. I have a couple here that that might be beneficial for you as you reflect and meditate on these. Um, Sometimes there's just a lot of interior noise that can drown out the simple idea that, that we receive God's grace and peace. Um, and we just need to sort of steer away from the chaos and the striving. So one practice uh, is just a careful reading of Psalm 131. Uh, pretty simple, three-verse psalm, which is essentially about letting go. It's about calm and quiet uh, surrender to things that are just too big for us. Right? That's what the psalm is about, and that's what grace is. It's the ability to let go of your striving and your chaos because you are the recipient of God's grace, even when it might not feel that way. Um, so spend, spend some time in Psalm 131, just prayerfully considering what Jesus might have for you in that. The second is the song, Grace and Peace. If you look it up on Spotify, it's just grace and peace. It's just a simple, simple song. If you look it up on Spotify, my whole family thinks it sounds like Matt Litzinger. So that is inherently like calming uh, that like, I think that's Matt Litzinger singing there. And it's just these simple reflections on the phrase grace and peace about God's love, about his kindness. Just short, simple reflections about what God has done in Jesus bringing us to himself. So, um, I imagine there are probably a lot of questions on chosen, predestined, and all that. I'd be happy to speak into those circumstances in the Q&A if you so desire. Um, I have all kinds of charts and diagrams, and it's just breathtaking. Uh, so, First Peter says that we are chosen, but we move from there into seeing that we're also tried. So, I'll read verses 3 to 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, 
kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while it's necessary that you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes even though refined by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So Peter moves in to praise, that this is a normal pattern in the letters of the New Testament as well. That word, blessed be the God of our Father, like that is, that is praise. And he praises God for his great mercy by which he has given us new birth into a living hope. He's given us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, preserved in heaven. It's actually plural there. It's in the heavens. So preserved for us beyond a spot where we could reach it to ruin it. I think that's the way to think about it, that it's, it's preserved for us in the heavens. It's the cookie jar on the top shelf that only the, anyway, sorry, moving back. All secured, now this is where it explicitly says that it's all secured by Jesus' resurrection and it's preserved through faith. And I almost don't want to like sully the words by commenting on them. There are these rich and beautiful phrases I think it's enough to say that Peter is lavish in his praise of God because what God has done is so extravagant. So these born again into a living hope, this inheritance that can't be defiled, that can't be tainted. He uses these almost hyperbole, but it is that good um, in what God has done in Jesus. So I think what's critical here is how we maintain a hopeful vision of reality even when it seems like reality is crumbling. And when we come back to the context of the passage, imagine for yourself what it would be like to receive this letter in the midst of trial and persecution. That's what the whole letter is about. That's what these phrases are about. It's not any ordinary thing that Jesus has done. It's so radical that it requires this kind of terminology. And that's what we need as we engage what I'll call the trials of life for right now, because I do want to speak, because uh, the passage does, about, about that reality as well. We are chosen by God. We are blessed, but we are also tried. And I think we do have to guard our hearts and our minds against this tendency to drift away from the simplicity uh, of what Jesus has done and not just the simplicity of it. Like I think it can become commonplace that we have an inheritance that is incorruptible. And I don't know about your day-to-day existence, but something that can't be tainted, that's good news. Like no matter what line of work you're in, no matter what your human interactions are, it seems like everything is corruptible and potentially co-opted for somebody's agenda. So the idea that there's something beyond the reach of sinful human beings is compelling to me. 
Um, and that's what is happening here. And if I could just suggest maybe another practice is just to take a few days to do a slow reading just of those phrases and to pick one that really resonates with you, right? So, for example, I might spend some time reflecting on the promises of God as imperishable and unfading to really soak in what that means, like something that doesn't decay. And as I look at the summer and the potential of home repair projects where it seems like everything is falling apart and I would much rather go look at a big mountain I, <laughs> or lots of big mountains. I'm a little bitter that we're not taking a trip this summer, but at $14 a gallon, I, I, I would need more than a full-time job. Um, maybe I'll set up a GoFundMe. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm not going to set up a GoFundMe. But anyway, the idea that there's something that's imperishable, like I have a love-hate relationship, like I like having a house to live in, I hate making repairs on it. I like having a car to drive to and from various places, I don't like the sound that a broken bearing makes in the front tire, uh, or a really loud muffler, and there's only like two inches left of it that's not rusted and needing to be welded. So the idea that there's a promise of God that is imperishable, incorruptible, doesn't fade, I might focus on that phrase. And if I spend long enough, I can get over myself and stop thinking about, you know, home repair projects and actually focus on things that matter. So that's just me. I'm just healing right here in front of you. See how this is happening? Uh, with um, another phrase might be a living hope, right? I think that that, that one in particular is, uh, is really compelling to me. So much in the world is just boring and static, but the idea that our hope is living and active and it's this complex system and it's like a tree that is spreading roots and becoming more stable, like the idea that hope is a living thing uh, is compelling. I might just spend some time, you know, thinking about that as well. So those are just some, some practical uh, exercises that you might try. But Peter moves on to say that they rejoice. He doesn't command that they rejoice. He just says, in this you rejoice. In this salvation, this imperishableness, this promise, this faithfulness of God's character, you rejoice in this even though you have been beset by various trials. And I'm going to tread very lightly around this next part if for no other reason uh, then I think that discussion of trials in Christian context is like the third rail of, you know, proclamation of the Christian message. There's just so much opportunity for misunderstanding or triggering people or, or causing a, a negative response. I, so this is my attempt to tread lightly. The passage does speak to it. And I think that if it does speak to it, this, this is an important thing for us to address as well. So, as we talk about trials, first, what does Peter even mean by trials? Um, I think that the New Testament use of the word trial is broad enough to include everything from the day-to-day -day trials that we all experience in life, all the way to bigger traumas um, that anyone sort of grieving. So there is, in the New Testament use of the word, there is this whole range of possible ways to hear it. Um, and I think that both the day-to-day -day trials, as well as the capital T trials, that these are both legitimate things to reflect on in the New Testament. I don't want to be seen as like minimizing anyone's grief um, or that something might be considered a trivial uh, sort of thing. 
I just want to be careful not to be too heavy handed on that. So um, I also don't want to be seen as discounting the suffering of others because the New Testament doesn't do that. But I do want to say that the word for trial does cover a whole range of, of possible hardships that we might experience. And Peter says we are grieved by these trials. They're, they're viewed for what they are. They are things that grieve us. They are things that cause us sorrow. So that's the first thing. And I don't know, depending on where everybody's coming from, there can be a lot of sort of discounting of people's experience, um, and that, that can be troubling, especially for, for God's people to do that. I think that, that Jesus didn't uh, engage in those sorts of things so that we ought not either. Second, as we think about trial, there's this future orientation to how we engage what Peter calls trials of various kinds. And this is what Peter means when he speaks to the tested genuineness of our faith, which results in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. It's not arbitrary suffering. Like, it's not a religious framework where, like, God has to teach you something so something hard happens. That, that's not a New Testament idea. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't work that way in, in biblical Christianity. I'm, I'm happy to speak to that as well. It's not this masochistic, like, well, you have to suffer. Eh, I want to be careful about that. That's not quite what happens. In this passage, at least, it's oriented toward the future. It assumes that trials happen. It assumes that it's something that we grieve. And it also looks forward in hope to what the, the trial might ultimately produce. And the New Testament talks about this. Uh, we have a couple, uh, can we go back one slide? So here it says, uh, same word for trials, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness, uh, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then in Romans 5, the next slide, slightly different word, but the same idea. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So there is the definition of trial, there is the future orientation of it, that it looks forward to what it is producing in us. And what does it produce here in First Peter? Praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. And then the last thing I would say about trial is Jesus. We're not forging a path through life that nobody has ever walked. In our grief and in our sorrow, in our trial, we're following the way of Jesus. And the Hebrews 4 speaks to this. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has in every respect been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Same word. He's not unmoved by it. He's not unaware of it. He's able to sympathize because he has walked this road. And it's such a comfort for me, at least, to know that we follow a God who's experienced the depth of what it means to be human. There's not a single thing that we experience that our God hasn't experienced. 
And maybe that's not a help at the present moment. We're all in very different places, I imagine. And you could very well be sitting here thinking, I don't believe a word of that. And that's okay. <laughs> that is a completely okay place to be. Um, and I would never try to talk somebody out of that. I would, I would prefer that God's people just listen, listen to those things. The only thing I'll say about that in my, and I'll just, as a personal example of where I, after the events in Texas last week, there was uh, somebody speaking on the radio of a Christian persuasion. Everything that they said was factually accurate. As I step back and say, nothing that they just said was incorrect technically, but it doesn't mean I didn't want to put my fist through the radio after what happened. So they're, and they're, again, factually accurate, but not timely um, in terms of their reflections. So that's just an example of where I, I do meet people who offering up uh, a, a message of hope, you just want to be very careful and sensitive in how you do that. You want people to be in a position to hear, and you don't want to too quickly rush to like whatever the lesson is. I don't, I don't think that that's what we should be on about. What I do know that happens is, like in that instance, I'm much calmer today. <laughs> and if I was sitting in the car listening to that radio, I've had a week to sort of process and think things through. I'm in a slightly different spot. So even if this idea that Jesus is the pioneer of this way, even if that's not a comfort to you. One thing I do imagine is that the end result with God is always better than what I could have imagined, right? Even in the most sort of abstract ways, if you think about life in spring, right? You look around and once you see the dust bowl of pollen blow by, there's a whole lot of color in the world as things blossom. Like it's it's a lovely thing. And God's imagination for things is always more astonishing than I could imagine. If I fast forward to the personal circumstances of trial, uh, it's hard for me to imagine that God could take something like that and somehow produce glory and honor and praise. But the thing that I love about God the most is that he doesn't start over. Like what's so compelling to me is he takes what's broken and he points it in a direction that is beautiful. That take the flood, for example. God doesn't hit the reset button on all of creation. God's glory is in part in taking those things and turning them to his glories in ways that we can't possibly imagine. And it might be the first 5,000 years into the new heavens and new earth before we get it. Right? I don't mean to shock anybody with my aberrant theology. There's going to be a process of healing in the new heavens and the new earth, that, that the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. So it as I fast forward to that in my mind, as I try to make sense of my present circumstances, I know fundamentally that God turns things better than we can possibly imagine. And that's what I trust. In the midst of this trial, I think that we're free to say and feel whatever we need to say and feel. And I think that Jesus can receive that because he's not fragile. But I also need to maintain the hope that somehow beyond the, the scope of history, this will turn out to be something beautiful. So take that for what it's worth.
all the heartache and pain of life uh, is, is made ultimately something that points to Jesus' glory. So we are chosen, we are tried, and finally we are blessed. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that you have now that have now been announced to you through the preached good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now, there seems to be a lot that could be said in this uh, paragraph. It's some of the strangest statements in this letter, honestly, if not the whole New Testament. What I like to do when I'm confused by things, um, like I find this paragraph to be a little confusing. What I do when I'm confused is I think about cupcakes, and then I have to get back to work, and then I, I start with the big picture. Uh, like, what is the big picture here? And the big picture here is longing. It says that the prophets searched and inquired carefully about the who and the when of Jesus. This shows that they are blessed. Like, these believers, these dispersed, exiled believers undergoing trial, they are the blessed recipients of what angels even long to look into that the prophets, they prophesied about this day, even not fully perceiving what they were preaching about. They, they searched and inquired carefully. But believers in the New Testament, these believers that Peter's writing to, they are the blessed recipients of the full expression of what God is doing in the world. That's the big picture. And it puts them in a privileged place. Again, it's always a reminder of who we are, that we're not sitting in the dark anymore, that even the prophets of old, they're not quite certain of how it's going to look when God does his thing. That's why Jesus presents so much confusion in the world that he walks into, because they weren't expecting it in exactly that way. That's why only marginalized people who weren't looking for it, that's why they get it. Uh, the religious leaders... The pastors of the day, they didn't, they didn't understand. And that, to me, is another sort of compelling reality. It's an encouragement to, to maintain faith that you are a blessed recipient of the full expression of what God's doing. One phrase here I would focus in on for these prophets, it says, they were serving not themselves, but you. So as these dispersed believers are the blessed recipients of the good news, we remind ourselves missionally that it's possible that we're serving others and not just ourselves. So as they prophesy about the coming of Christ, it's something that they did not see in their lifetime, that they were putting it forward um, for the benefit of others. And I think that that's something for us to reflect on. In what ways are we serving those who will come after us? Um, I think that that is a part of the reality here as well. So as we close today's sermon and set the trajectory uh, for the rest of the series, my prayer is that we can keep these competing realities uh, in, in some tension with one another, that it is, it is okay uh, to engage life's challenges as we live out our exile, 
but also that we would find hope in the character of our God, in his kindness and his generosity, that we would find firm footing in times of trial on the faithfulness of his character. And as we continue to do this deep work of growing into the image of Jesus, I pray that his spirit would meet us in these places. I would recommend just read through the book several times just to familiarize yourself with what's there. I know the disadvantage for people is like, how many have read First Peter in the last couple of years? Like it's, it's challenging, but as we engage this series, um, just to be familiar with what's there, uh, I think that that would, good, that would be good and help us to, uh, to grow into all that Jesus has for us. I'd like to pray, and then I'm happy to speak to any questions. I did go a little bit over. I apologize for that, um, but I would be happy to, to answer any questions. So let's pray, and then we'll do that. For the generosity and kindness that we experience day by day, God, we thank you, and I pray that whatever here that we've heard, whatever has penetrated our hearts and minds, I pray that those would be the things that we hang on to today. Bless us this week as we seek to follow you more fully. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.